Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as How difficult is it to stack the melee? Would Morak be beautiful if he just took off his glasses and straightened his hair? And, sorry, but is black a bad influence? The very worst kind. Diplomacy is the art of selling a deal you don't want to people you don't trust for reasons you won't admit to. Procopia Lycopony, first and only hierarch of the League of Free Cities. First and only is an interesting claim, I would say. First, of course. Sure, I'm not going to argue with history here, but only? I don't want to appropriate uh, phrases from those who have truly earned them, but in regards to the title of Hierarch, may it never return. Can you imagine how powerful the free cities would become if they had a Hierarch to lead them again? A true authoritarian hammer whipping those people into line? Yeah, I... I have to imagine that the free cities would take that and run and become the true continental power. Can't imagine any other result. I Okay, let's be fair. Who would imagine the result? It's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> fair. Speaking of imagining results, uh, this chapter we see a lot of plotting, planning, and figuring. Yeah, uh, the summary for this chapter is a real simple one. Kat lays a few plans or lays the foundations for a few plans with her officers. She speaks to the captains of a few of the other, uh, uh, she speaks to the captains of a few of the other companies to put together some kind of, if not coalition, at least overarching scheme to nudge things in her favor. And then she sort of debriefs with Black at the end of it. Most of this chapter, all of this chapter, I suppose, is just, creating the groundwork for the next series of chapters coming up, the big five-way melee. It's an important groundwork chapter for those, but as far as things happening, we don't see a whole lot of that, which I've noticed is a frequent enough occurrence in this story that you get a, a build-up chapter before the big things happen, which is great. It's cool to see the characters preparing for things. It's great to see Kat doing the beginnings of her schemes. It's a, it's a nice format to follow, but 
you know, we've seen that a couple times now, and this is uh, this is a big one because the you know we've talked about the uh, chapter titles a little bit, and this one on its own doesn't mean a whole lot, but in conjunction with the next few chapters, it really does. Like at a meta level, this is the setup chapter for the other ones. And what is the title of this chapter? This chapter is all according to. And what are the titles of the other chapters? In order, the next few chapters are Morok's plan, Aisha's plan, Snatcher's plan, Juniper's plan, Callow's plan. Beautiful. EE does great work with chapter titles individually, but when they work together like this, when you get a series of chapters that have titles like this, it it's just very nice. We don't start with that kind of glory. We start with idle conversation. No one goes through the front gate, Callow, Redface told me pityingly. Not unless you have a name or you're in disfavor with the Empress. We gave Black a little bit of a hard time last chapter because of, or two chapters ago, my apologies. We gave Black a little bit of a hard time two chapters ago because he seemed to be doing things in the most difficult way possible and then expecting Kat to do all right with that somehow. And this is just another layer to that. He picked the most dangerous entrance, the entrance that normal people just don't even use, didn't warn Kat at all, and then the moment they were through it, turned around and blamed her for that. Uh, not not his best move, I would say. Admittedly, Radface says you don't go through unless you have a name. Clearly, Black is just a slave to tradition. Just like how he gladly kneels before the Empress, he goes through the gate that is appointed for him. Right, that, that's definitely Black in a nutshell. You've, you've pegged him pretty well. Though, I'm not the o- I am the greatest, but I am not the only one capable of pegging the character of another. Catherine tells us that Hakram is present in what is a senior officer's meeting. He's merely a sergeant. This is lieutenants and up. But everyone's cool with it, and Catherine says, I'd come to value his advice too much to care if him being around ruffled a few feathers. Yeah, uh, I think I think this is great. This is Catherine demonstrating one of her better traits in leadership, which we see time and time again, frankly. She recognizes talent and then uses that, recognizes the talent of other people and then uses it to the best of their abilities. Even once she's in angling toward and becoming the warden, she's using other named as almost you know pieces on a game board where she knows what they are good at and manipulates them into acting in the way that best suits her plans according to their abilities i'd say she's a little less manipulative with her friends and the woe but still seeing what people are good at and then focusing on that she knows what she's about there it's great and yet she recognizes nothing in killian uh all Goofs aside about not knowing what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. We know what happens. We know that Catherine and Killian have a little thing and and then stop having a thing. And then that's about it. And Catherine hasn't paid much attention to Killian. Catherine says here, uh, I'd paid little attention to the lieutenant of the mage line when I first come across her in Ratface's tent and hadn't seen much of her since. Red-haired and pale-skinned, she was an unusual sight this deep in the wasteland. Okay, we get our first real piece of description of Killian, which is cool, great, and unusual for Kat for someone she's going to lust over. We, we don't even hear about rivulets of water coursing across her skin. Sorry, that's next chapter. Someone else. <laughs> right. But not only that, she really undervalues the time spent with her as well. She says, 
I'd paid little attention to her, hadn't seen much of her since. This is the only officer other than Nock and Hockram that she spent any significant time on screen with, any significant time in the combat with. And she just has no opinion of her. Well, you you have to pay attention to the wording here. She hadn't seen much of her. Killian is much, much smaller than Knocker Hawkram, so comparatively, she's seen very little of Killian. Oh, you're right. As Catherine well knows, short people are simply less important. I think Kat says that kind of thing pretty frequently, yeah. that That's a pretty much a running theme of hers. Doesn't she specifically want to illegalize being shorter than her or something? That's definitely Kat that says that, yes. So before I do my next point, I want to cite my credentials here. Or rather, cite my extreme lack of credentials. All right. The language of the duchy up north that Catherine may be somewhat descended from, uh, content warning slur, but the Waller spawn stuff, uh, the language used seems to derive from perhaps Irish, correct? Uh, Approximately, yeah. Or, yeah, I think so. So I questioned an ex who questioned an ex who was born in that country and whose family, but not himself, speaks the language for pronunciation. Okay. And the pronunciation of what we have jokingly been calling Dwarith, sorry, I don't know where that adverb came from, uh, that we have been very seriously and committedly calling Dwarith, appears to be somewhere in the realm of, despite all of the letters, Jor or Jora, depending if you're doing Munster pronunciation or the rest of the country. Jor or Jora, because the A-I-T-H-E is practically silent to an American English ear. Huh. But relevant to the next one, the adjectival form, which I think matching Dwarith would have to be something around the lines of Deoini. That feels inappropriate enough. I don't know. We haven't done a form of it. Doini? Doini? Yeah, something like that. Dwarith and Doini uh, sure. are actually apparently somewhere around the realms of Jora. And Deina, Deina, Jora and Deina. Deina would be longer than Jora. I can, I mean, I can easily see Deina out of what I'm looking at here. Jora's yeah. a little tougher for an American English speaker, but sure. Now then the question becomes, what should we do going forward? Because it's not Irish. It is, in fact, the Dwarith language, the Jora language. That is a good question. Please write in. Engagement pleases the algorithm, our one true god. <laughs> The algorithm that definitely really benefits us at this point. Send us emails. That'll really help our YouTube algorithm bump up our podcast. That can't be found there. But that all said, some of which is cut for posterity, Catherine reveals that her name is not actually Callow. And Pickler cocks her head to the side and says, you're not actually the Duchess of Dayena's secret bastard offspring, are you? And for all we know, in all likelihood... I guess we don't have proof she isn't. Perhaps really she is. There, there's room for that, I suppose. Though it would have come up eventually if she were, because that'd be a story. But in a world of such stories, the odds that, that Catherine actually is the Duchess of Daina's secret bastard offspring gotta be up there, right? Like, more likely than not at this point, for all we know. Oh, sure, yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense like you would expect that kind of thing when the tropes of stories are <laughs> ingrained in reality here but yeah if if it turned out that cat actually was related to the duchess that would be a thing in the story almost certainly since it's not 
she's not, even though we don't know for sure from a actual like biological standpoint, it doesn't. It yeah. But it is not that she is a hidden heir to the Duchy of Deina that she's about to reveal. She's going to reveal really not just what her name isn't, but what her name is. He doesn't fully admit to it at first, and uh Killian gets excited because she had a bet with Ratface that it was name related. Congratulations, Killian, you're correct. And Ratface says disappointed because he had to pay Killian. She doesn't do magic, and there's already a squire and heiress running around. What name could she possibly have? And, uh, haha, there's already a squire running around. Funny reveal. But we all we already know that certain governments, certain states, have specific names associated with them. Um, Trace especially has, you know, the handful of big names attached to Trace. The Dread Empress, the Black Knight, the Chancellor when it's not illegal, uh, the Warlock, the, you know, in this case right now, the Squire and Eris. You've got a, a handful of others, but there aren't that many. And the way that Ratface phrases this, it makes me wonder, are there just actually no other names that come out of Trace proper other than the big ones that everybody knows about? Or is Ratface just very uneducated in how many named there are at a time in the world. Because I, 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 the way he phrases this implies that other than Squire and Eris, there aren't any other young named people possible in Prace. And yet we see the sheer magnitude of the list of named. That's not even a complete list by any means under the truth and terms later on. And it's not imaginable to him that there's anything else. Partially that's just close-mindedness for sure. But it seems like Prace is a relatively closed set, which makes sense for an empire of its extremely rote evils at this point, if you ask me. Sure, that makes sense. Prace, you know, you've got different states who are engaged in different conflicts with other states, and they've got named associated with those conflicts or with locations. Prace is, in many ways, defined by Callow more than by anything else, even itself, even its own history, because it's the evil empire that's going up against the good kingdom. So, yeah, I mean, its names are in place to create the story of the evil empire that doesn't really change, because if it changes, it's no longer the same story. I I can see that. So they recognize that Catherine is a squire. She lets it slip. And then she explains what this upcoming combat is really about. But she just revealed she's famous, and then she says, well, long story short, I got baited by Eris, and now we're in this mess. And that is what happened. Sure. Yes. Great. But imagine your buddy, who you've known for a week, revealing all of a sudden that they're actually the Prince of Monaco, and that what you're about to do is because they got into a tiff with Malia Obama. Like, sure, just start naming your famous friends. That's really what Uba is at this point, a famous friend. Yeah, right. Cat's just name-dropping here in a very literal sense. And you know who's loving it? Akram. (laughs) Absolutely. Just to quote, My sergeant seemed to have an inside track into every story going on in the college and displayed absolutely no reluctance in feeding me the juiciest morsels. He is a gossip. He is a flirt. He never changes. And I love how not at odds, but unexpected that is, when compared to his general public face, especially later in the series. 
where he is Hakram Deadhand. I mean, the adjutant being a gossip, you know, you can see how that skill set and interest would align themselves, kind of. They have very different feels, but the same kind of technique, maybe. But yeah, <laughs> it's definitely... Hawkram is a, a special boy, as we've said before, and we'll continue to say everything about him is great. Catherine fears Eris will bribe her way to victory, but Piccolo says that will not work. Not here. Radfield says anyone takes a bribe for this and their career in the legions is over. And Catherine's thought is that her teacher could put in a quiet word with some of his followers and kill someone's career if he wanted to. And sure, yeah, he, he could and would do that. Probably, yeah. He doesn't want to encourage that kind of thing. But I think Catherine might be going a bit far to assume black intervention. Like, the Legion seems like a pretty disciplined group in some aspects, in many aspects. Is it so unbelievable to think that a sign of a bribe will have you both officially and unofficially, without any direct intervention from the great Black Knight himself, iced out of any hope of advancement? That seems like a fundamental violation of a Legion honor code or something. I think I agree with you. I think there's a chance that this is a case of, well, of Cat being Callowin and thinking, well, Prace is evil and corruption is evil. Therefore, all Pracy do bribes with each other all the time, and it's just expected. But yeah, the legions are not, you know, Saturday morning cartoon evil, as has been made abundantly clear by this point. They are evil in result and methods, but not goofy. They're just a very effective military. And also, they're a military. At the end of the day, bribes are not, interventions are not... It's not like this is a kind of war game that can be easily stacked. According to Pickler, at least. And I just have to say, I feel as though everybody in this conversation is massively underestimating Ubla. Just because, you know, Knock or Ratface don't have the connections to stack a war game doesn't mean Eris, who's also heir to Wolof, would be incapable. She's She's one of the more capable people in this setting, frankly. She can she can stack a game at the college, I guarantee it. <laughs> but really, as we go on, we find it's not Eris we're worried about. It's the big bad. It's Juniper. And while Juniper is something to fear, because she is explicitly their enemy, they're not explicitly Juniper's prey. Ratface says the bright side about the situation is that Juniper is unlikely to hold a grudge. She'll want to win this one too badly to focus on us. She'll go for victory, not payback. Holding a grudge, sure. Juniper wouldn't allow that to interfere with her planning, though I think it's kind of impressive that she doesn't have some kind of acrimony towards Catherine. We've seen none expressed so far. But just because Juniper is not holding a grudge against Catherine doesn't mean that Rat Company isn't led by a named person who was able to turn around a clear defeat. Sure, through a little luck, through circumstance, through reveal of the name. But nonetheless, who is the most concerning person on the field? Catherine Foundling. Or rather, Catherine Callow. Who is the individual to beat? It's Juniper or Catherine. Catherine's the big threat. She's the unknown. Juniper can handle the rest. It'll be a challenge. I mean, this is a five-way melee. Anyone could come out on top. But the biggest targets are on Juniper and Rat Company. 
on and callow kitty cat it, it is an interesting balance to strike in this planning because you know that you've got a target on your back in dealing with juniper specifically for all of the reasons just mentioned and also for everybody else you're the person who defeated the first company that's a big deal but on the flip side there are three other companies involved who are all going to have their own motivations they're all going to have grudges that they're going to be going after and they're also all going to have their own unique personalities fighting styles each each of these companies is apparently specialized in some way except as we find out later first and rat and that makes them all dangerous in different ways and worth planning around in different ways mostly i'd be afraid of snatcher why just because every one of his cadets takes sapper classes and sappers are the legionaries who use goblin munitions what's the big deal okay imagine a pack of spiders running across a field. <laughs> I don't want to imagine this. <laughs> now imagine that even the non-spider members of the group have been taking arachna classes. Oh, this is horrible. This is my nightmare. I think the nightmare is just what Catherine has to face here. We get uh, a little bit of just surface-level description, mostly just names of the various captains of the other, uh, the other companies. Um, we get our first mention, or our first real mention, I guess, of um, Aisha Bashara, who's in charge of Wolf Company. Obviously, we have Snatcher, uh, who's over Fox Company, and we have Morak, who last chapter, or two chapters ago, several chapters ago, was it Pivot, actually? It was Pivot. And we have Morak, who in Pivot, I questioned where we knew that name from. This is where we find out exactly who he is. Morak is the head of Lizard Company, who's Claim to fame in this chapter so far is their second place behind only Hellhound, behind only First Company. Nothing really to say about him yet until he's on screen, but I uh, just wanted to note that, hey, I know who he is now. Thanks, EE. Yeah, second place. Sounds scary. But, you know, Catherine's got clever ideas, and that's what counts. She does have clever ideas, and clever ideas that make some of her officers a little nervous. She says that she's got some ideas that maybe aren't clever, but rather um, debatable, because Ratface reveals that they are 42 points in the negative, keeping in mind that winning a game gets you two points and losing makes you lose two points. So that's a lot of games. But she, she says that they're going to go for broke and try some of the for more wild ideas because they don't really have much to lose. And Hawkroom comes in with... Such a great line, like such a, a the kind of line that would be delivered poorly in a sitcom, but in this is so good. She says, you know, the some of my more debatable ideas, and Hawkeye says, hopefully it doesn't involve jumping logs this time. <laughs> that hasn't been a winner for me so far. <laughs> it's. I feel so bad for Hogroom, but that's so funny. <laughs> the the follow-up to that is, of course, Kat offering to establish some kind of drill for Hogroom to be ready to jump over logs. All around, great little interaction. Catherine goes up to Ratface directly afterwards, clasps him on the shoulder, and says, So you're our supply guy. Which we know is his role from now until the end of the book when he retires happy and healthy. Mm. Uh... And he shrugs and says, oh, pardon. He shrugs 
his handsome features highlighting the absurdity of his chosen name. Remember, Ratface is hot. And he says something like that. Usually it's the captain's job to handle this stuff, but you have enough on your plate already. Ratface ends up in his position in the kingdom of Callow because Catherine can't handle taking on all the duties at once while learning how everything works. Ratface just kind of retains a little captaincy in the part that he has a good time doing, in the part he's good at. And that's what I call failing forward. I really think it's just some sort of nepotistic designed by Catherine to keep the hot people around her. I'll be honest, if I were in charge of Ratface, I would give him whatever job he wants. <laughs> well, at least you're honest about it. <laughs> Listeners will note that I only surround myself with the most attractive of people. Look at my co-host. Look at myself. Look at my listenership. Yeah, talking about you. Yeah. Catherine comes up with a convoluted plan regarding supplies. There's somehow... Right. There's some sort of method here where you have to, when you get your supplies for the games, there are specific limits on what munitions you can take, and you have to publicly post what you take, what you've withdrawn, probably for security, but also so that everybody's aware of what everybody else can do. Sure. It's a little odd, but also, oh, wow, there's a weird bureaucracy thing in the military. Fine. And Kat comes up with this plan to draw everything out that they are going to use until the last possible moment, then switch at the last second, cutting back down to uh, appropriate numbers and misleading everybody as to exactly what munitions they have. It's quite the convoluted plan for what feels to me a relatively small gain, but I guess if the effort in doing so is just, hey, Ratface, do this thing, Maybe it's worth it because every small gain can add up to a big advantage in battle, I suppose. But it's the fact that, hey, here's the rules of supplies. Aha. So I can game this a little bit. And that she's she knows that this is a, such a rough situation that she's looking to eke out every last drop of advantage. She's desperate. I don't want to sound like that guy who reads one book. And then has to compare everything to that book. Okay. But can I compare something to a book I read again? Please do. Lightly. And I do not accuse this of being derivative or what have you. But lightly, this affair with the supplies does call to mind to me Ender's Game. Where, you will recall, there is a point where they go into the supplies and just figure out, hey, what can we pull off with some string? Significant effect. Catherine's kind of working along the same lines here, though she doesn't succeed in breaking the game. Unlike Ender, who succeeds in breaking and breaking and breaking so much. See, Ender's game is a story about breaking the world, and Practical Guide to Evil is just a story about a kid going on an adventure. Well, breaking one world in particular, but yes. What I'm saying is that Ender Wigan should be an honorary named. And just like Ender Wigan is apparently an honorary named, or we'll just move past that, we find out shortly after this discussion with Ratface, that Robert considers Hakram an honorary goblin. This is one of the highest honors we see bestowed by anyone to anyone, I think, in this entire series of books. An honorary goblin. Hakram is killing it, I have to say. Well, I would assume there's a lot of killing going on if you're an honorary goblin, yes. <laughs> okay, fair, yes. Very, very, very good. But this 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 conversation, just to, to set the scene here, is uh, 
Rob Robert is uh, assigned as Cat's guide to get her to meet with the other captains, and there's a little bit of discussion about the how attractive orcs are compared to each other and other people in creation, and Cat's way of responding to Robert's effusive praise is, "Wait, but aren't you friends with an orc?" Which is a little rough, I gotta say, but you know, an honorary goblin orc, so maybe 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 it's okay. I applaud Robert on avoiding the he's one of the good ones argument and just going to straight into no, he doesn't count. He doesn't count because I want to have him as my ugly son. Ugly, but still beloved. Naturally. Catherine responds to this in her internal narration with what may be the most self-evident line of the series. She says, I must have been a bad person deep down. And then she says other stuff, but she's right. He's definitely right. Kat was just realizing she's a bad person as more or less as she's moving into this meeting with Morak, we get a little uh, rough patch with the guards at Morak's training area because Robber's there. And uh, so Robber agrees to depart and leave Kat to her meeting in a very Robber-like way. Catherine leaves to meet the captain, calling down calling back to Robber, try not to get stabbed, Sergeant. And she was halfway through the doorway when she hears him call back. No promises. And I love my child. And I (laughs) cherish my dear little boy. He's not promising. Oh, or he's not giving a cheeky, you know, haha, no promises. I won't stab anyone else. It's a cheerful no promises on him getting stabbed. It's, he's so, he's so extremely robber. He's the best. I'm just so glad that he and Radface are both able to retire happy and safe. Okay, listen, you can't do this to me every time. Ratface is one thing, but don't do this with Robber. <laughs> I can't handle it. I love him. Me too. Uh, before we get to any more content, really, I do have one more comment about a throwaway detail. Mm-hmm. My comment is sheesh. And the throwaway detail is that Morak, we find Morak, he's sparring with someone. Uh, her description, though, one with a Tagreb girl, the largest I'd seen since Captain. Moving on, we get description about Captain Morak. He was the ugliest orc Catherine had ever seen. He wasn't wearing his helmet, so I could see from the occasional grin that his teeth were yellowish. His eyes were dark and deep set, and I couldn't help but notice he had a large brownish mole just above his lip that was almost fascinatingly hideous. Like most orcs, Captain Morak was heavily muscled. Where the likes of Hockram and Nock were in perfect shape, he had something a pot belly. Not that it was hindering him any. He was winning the fight, and pretty handily. And Catherine might not like it, but this is what peak orc performance looks like. This is the ideal orc body. <laughs> Typically speaking, when we are introduced to a new character, if they get more than, uh, what, half a sentence of description, it's because they're super hot. And Morak just rolls in. Perhaps canonically the ugliest character in the entire thing, according to Catherine. And it's great. I don't really have a lot of strong feelings about Morak, clearly. I couldn't remember who he was prior to this chapter. But the fact that Kat just needs to spend four sentences just going on and on about how ugly this man is. There's something special about him, and I really respect him for it. Well, as someone who's read more Freud than most people are ever subjected to, and then proceeded to forget about it because... Honestly. Honestly. I'm pretty sure that he or someone else 
probably said something along the lines of disgust being tied to or dialectically twinned with the arousal response. You know, some dead German guy can say that Catherine's actually really attracted to him because of this, right? Are you saying that... No, I'm not saying Freud is German. He's Austrian. I know. Okay, get off my case. Are you saying that Kat's mother was an orc who looked like Morak? That would explain everything. I think I think this is my new headcanon. You're saying Duchess Keegan is an orc? <laughs> Perfect. I, I think that's I think that's what we're supposed to pick up if you read between the lines in this this paragraph. So a little blatant. Yeah. Fan artists, I hope you're ready to change everything you've ever done. Cat is half orc. I apologize to everyone. This conversational aside is probably worse than goblin fire. Which is a little, a cute little turn of phrase that Cat drops, except she includes an article in there that makes me think Ooh. she is really trying to get found out. Like, Juniper knows who she is, her company's officers know who she is, but she's not being exactly public about the fact that she's the squire. And yet she says, this is going to be worse than the goblin fire, isn't it? And Morak, of course, is like, yo, what are you talking about? And Kat's response is just, Nothing. Anyway, she's going out of her way to drop hints that she's the squire all over the place. <laughs> we, we've talked about this at length. We will continue to talk about it. Kat is a schemer. She's brilliant. She's good at manipulating people. She has some amazing talents. She also is a very bad liar at this point, I guess. And it's, it's pretty cute. Morak meets her, calls her a skinny thing for the heiress to Deina. Which prompts her goblin fire response. Then she says she's got no relation to the Duchess. It's just a rumor. Morak smirks, saying, sure it is. We have traded the lightest and least confrontational of barbs imaginable. And Catherine's response is, it occurred to me then that he was being rude on purpose. Frankly, between this and Catherine breaking a finger in response to one, sure, racial slurs are a terrible thing and we don't know the level of offense that Waller spawn causes. Sure. But at the high pricey function with the people who hate you, that's really quick response. Here, in response to this, she realizes, oh, this is where he's trying to be rude to me. This is I am going to have to try to not take offense in a way that will lose me Catherine really is thin skinned for a future arch heretic, isn't she? I think pushing a pushing about somebody's lineage is a little rude sure but yeah she definitely jumps from hey i'm meeting you for the first time wow you're skinny to oh he's being rude on purpose and i gotta watch out he's got a type that he's he's pushing me to reveal something i mean also he's made one comment and he had a sarcastic response if i walked in and somebody said oh well if it isn't joseph biden's long lost son and i said oh that's just a rumor (laughs) And, you know, and I said, oh, that's just a rumor. And their response was, sure it is. That's that's a funny little thing to say. (laughs) You know, that's just a goof. Your teeth are not half so CGI white and glaring. Ah, I didn't know if you were comparing my teeth to orc teeth, but no, Joe Biden's teeth. Understood. No, your teeth are very orcish. The second row is pretty orcish. The first row is still pretty human. I appreciate that. It's a detail dropped as they chat. Uh, Catherine's here to ally with him against Juniper. Juniper is the one to beat. Morak needs to beat her to bring his company to first. Therefore, hey, why don't we work together that far? Blah, 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 whatever. This isn't the point of my comment. My comment 
is what Morak reveals to us about the last time Lizard Company fought Rat Company. Did your little helper Ratface tell you what I did to your company last time we fought? He asked. Didn't even use munitions, and we still took the fort. First time it ever happened, I'm told. And what I love about this, yeah, Ratface is terrible at leading the army. We know that. Great. He lost embarrassingly and constantly. Yeah, we know. Great. But it's not that they could take the fort without munitions. In a ranked war game where all the pride of the college is on the line, blah, 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 Morak decided to not even bother with munitions. This wasn't a, we can probably do it without trying. This was, eh, let's go take the fort. Knock Radface down. I don't know what he did wrong, but something. And based on what we've seen, there's no bonus points or extra credit for not using munitions. You're trying to practice for the field, which means practicing using everything at, at your disposal. And Morak still was like, yeah, let's handicap ourselves here on purpose. Or the flex, I guess. <laughs> and without any use of munitions, they went through the lilies, they climbed the wall, the 30-foot wall, and they took the fort from, I'm just going to assume, dug-in defenders. We learn a little bit about why Rat Company is so bad next chapter, and I have a feeling that probably plays into this situation, alongside Morak having a couple of pretty, uh, pretty beefy folks on his side, but still... You know, Come on, Ratface. Get it together. Or rather, don't get it together, I guess. You you got it together as well as you could by giving control over to Catherine. So, you know, nicely done. Really? If they weren't doing so poorly, Catherine wouldn't have had such an obvious company to join and she might have ended up somewhere else. Ratface led Rat Company to victory in this next battle by losing leadership. So what you're saying is Ratface killed the dead king. I don't see how there could be any other conclusion. Good for him. So there's a little discussion back and forth. Like you mentioned, the purpose of this this meeting here is for Catherine to get Morak uh, on her side for the purpose of beating Juniper. Morak is hesitant, of course. And so Kat, rather than go back and forth with all sorts of discussions, arguments and negotiations, just says, well, here's the plan. If I can't win, I'll surrender and just give all of my munitions to Juniper. And then everybody else loses, and she just wipes the floor with all of you. Just that she's so willing to just shrug and say, eh, if I can't win, no one else can. <laughs> and she is shameless in taking this approach, which is a, you know, moderately shameful approach, generally speaking. And it, uh, <laughs> it works, apparently. Morak is shocked, enraged. He growls, he winces. But he says, it'd take someone with no pride to flop belly up like that. And Kat replies, I'm Callowin, Morak, in Karsum. I've spent my entire life with an imperial boot pushing down on my throat. How proud do you really think I am? And that transition into, I am going to level with you in your language. Let's drop all pretense. I'm going to come naked before you in your language to reveal my depravity. Iconic. It's it's very good. It's very powerful. It's also the statement itself about I've spent my entire life with an imperial boot pushing down on my throat. Accurate. The conclusion, though, that therefore I have no pride is believable. Sure. Uh, a, an oppressed people having the pride ground out of them by violence constantly. I believe that. Sure. But it's also so far 
away from being correct for Kalos specifically, that this is wild that Morak, well, not wild, I would say, that it is demonstrative of exactly how little of the actual details of the conquest are getting back to, you know, war college initiates, that Morak is just okay with this, that he just accepts, no, we lost the war, I have no pride now as being the truth rather than a slight shifting of how things work. I don't know. I I understand that what Kat's saying is more like I'm willing to do anything it takes, but acting like that's a lack of pride is maybe not the angle that I would be most likely to, one, go with, or two, believe. And then she goes on to Bishara. Who, in the first little bit of description uh, of her, we get that she's taller than Kat, and Kat is chagrined to, to notice this. And I just isn't everybody taller than Kat? Is she constantly chagrined when she meets anybody? Because everybody's taller than her. Why is, why is this specific person a problem for Kat? We get description of her. She was rather pretty in the way that some Tagreb were. With a lovely heart-shaped face, tan skin, and wide eyes, I could easily see how she would have caught Ratface's eye. Uh, they had been a thing, and now they're not. Uh, maybe they'll get together at the end. I'm sure mm-hmm. Bishar won't find anyone else right. from the War College. Who actually Someone knows how to maybe do a little more competent. Yeah, somebody who knows how to do a military. And when she meets with Catherine, she makes tea. She pours for both of them. Uh, it's a Tagreb tradition. Hospitality was a point of pride for the Tagreb. And I'm just enjoying watching this develop. We saw the fireside uh, piece with the mask boy. With uh, the other claimants for the title of squire. And here we see a tea ceremony. An old tradition from before the days the first meets in galley had ever reached the wasteland shore, and one that was central to the southern culture in many respects. Very cool. Very sweet. I love this. Let's keep an eye on that as it develops. Yeah, the the Tagreb culture that we see here and there is it's definitely I don't know. Mm, let me I'm looking for a word here. It's it's definitely not forefront in the story very frequently. There aren't that many uh, t- uh, characters that are primary in the front of things um, that are uh, to grab you. But we do see a few here and there. And yeah, it's definitely it's definitely cool to keep an eye on that, where you can see the distinction between the pricey uh, of the tower and uh, the, uh, you know, hospitable desert folk. One example we see here of, you know, just general pricey culture, though, is Kat mentioning that she's replacing... Uh, Ratface, there's uh, at the very beginning of the discussion here, and Aisha doesn't really respond other than blinking, and Kat thinks to herself, that was what I hated about dealing with Pracy. You could dump a bucket full of sheep heads on one's table, and you wouldn't get much more than a frown out of them. What she's describing, first of all, is kind of just politicians, I think, but also what a weirdly specific example of something one might do to get a reaction. Why is why is cat dumping sh- sheep's heads on tables? Why is why is this the example she goes for? Oh well, we're seeing a Tagrebi tea ceremony. Uh, that's actually a move known as the Calwin tea ceremony. Very popular. Gotcha. But I mean, dumping sheep's heads on a table not something cat does. Dumping other things on people unexpectedly, though. Your transitions are getting to be as horrible as mine. You're welcome. I laud you. Uh Catherine describes this impassivity of the 
upper class. She says, trying to get a read on the nobility of the wasteland was like trying to dry a god-stammed lake. And like a lake, in the end, she just resorts to dumping them on her enemies. She does her lakeomancy. She pioneers the field of lakeomancy. Mm-hmm. And after she ends the Empire of Praise, she turns all of the nobles, all the horrors of the wasteland, on to Keter itself. Flying fortresses, monsters, cackling, mad people, the whole nine yards. Good for Catherine. See something you can't stand? Throw it on someone else. Catherine reveals she knows about Ratchface's previous relationship, and it causes a moment of consternation before realization dawns. It was Hakram who revealed that information. And Catherine says, in other circumstances, she might have tried to defend her favorite minion, but he really was a gossip. Look at her falling into the role of evil, having minions, Mm -hmm. and her immediate favoritism of our favorite minion. No further comment. <laughs> I love him. It's it's great. We get uh, we get Asia saying once in one grace to sort of sum up why he's okay with Ratface being replaced. And Kat takes this to think through the philosophy of the legions and the state of evil as a unified concept, more or less, because evil is pracy exclusively in cat's mind at this point and she she says when the next war came and i had no doubt that one was coming there would be no blundering generals at the head of the legions the coming generation of evil would not fall apart on its own you're talking that evil is no longer the man-eating tapirs and talking tigers it is focused it is competent it is effective and she's saying that the next generation the one that will be involved in her story is going to be unified in a way that isn't going to fall apart at the slightest internal pressure and acting like that's a new thing but we're still in the realm of the previous generation of evil and Pat's description of it is of the the next generation is pretty appropriate for black's generation as well the calamities aren't going to fall to infighting they're not going to get involved in wild schemes that fall apart and cause massive problems for everybody involved. They're the calamities. They're led by black. They're they're more competent than anybody, pretty much. So yeah, Kat's right, but she's also a generation behind in her, her analysis. She listens to the stories too much. She then drinks a tea. And she says, it's the first time I ever tasted that blend. How much tea do Callowans drink? I mean, Callow's partially modeled after England, so a lot. When did England drink tea? Right now, presumably. Let's see. The history of European interaction with tea dates back to the mid-16th century. 1615 was the earliest known reference to tea by an Englishman. Uh, An agent for the East India Company in Japan. Wow, I bet that's an exciting history. Hmm. Yeah, tea was not really pouring through London until the 1650s. Well, excuse me for doing a meme. Which I think is the middle medieval period? The middle evil period, right? The 1650s? Yeah, because we don't leave the medieval period and go to modern times until George Washington saved the world in 1776. Right. I'm done with this bit. Can I talk about language again? Please do. Catherine says, I'm not keen on letting Snatcher build his walls while the rest of us fight it out. And having piqued her interest, she leans forward and in Tagrebi says, 
Let us talk business then. Every time she's going into her offer, she goes into her interlocutor's native tongue, Karthum Tagrebi. I think that's really cool. She switches out of the common tongue, goes into both a code, so far as a less universal language is a code, and into the linguistic home of the person she's dealing with, putting them at some kind of ease, maybe? It's a really cool use of language that's only present in two words, in Karsum and in Tegrebi. No big deal is made out of it, but I think it's a cool detail. It's a fun detail. Agree with me. I do agree with you. I was talking to our listeners. Uh, I don't agree with you. Don't lie. Uh, I can neither agree nor disagree. Hi guys, it's me, from the future. This is being recorded the night before the episode is published because I realized I missed something here. Did you know? It's typically easier to lie in a second language than in a native language simply because the body's natural defenses against lying, the tells that many people have because of moral compunction or fear, are less able to be present in a language we are less proficient in, probably because a lot of talking in another language, at least at introductory to intermediate levels, isn't so much about saying what is true, but rather ciphering or puzzling out our message according to these foreign rules. And so maybe Catherine can use this to improve her currently abysmal line. Also, my co-host doesn't know I recorded this, so nobody tell him. Thank you. But Kat, now having met with two of the four opposing captains, she's obviously not going to meet with Juniper, that's the enemy, and Snatcher apparently just isn't important enough to warrant a discussion. She meets with Black to sort of debrief on how things are going, have her discussion with her mentor that you've got to have because you're a squire. And the first thing she says to him is that she's read all of the reports on games Juniper has commanded. I We don't know the exact timeline other than after touching base with my officers, I'd gone back to Black. When did she have time to read presumably 15, 20, 30, however long Juniper's been here, individual reports on war games? She's, obviously, she can probably read these things very quickly, thanks to learn, but geez, what, I just... Her day has been full from start to finish. We've seen her entire day so far. When, when was she reading reports? Well, how long are these reports? I assume about as long as Company Game Set Match, since that was one war game. That was a story. These are reports. Full context, or the full content of the report for the game we saw is as follows. War game number blah, 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 blah. Stardate blah, 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 blah. Rad Company versus First Company. It looks like Juniper is winning. Wait, the new kid's out with some other people. Hey, they took the watchtower. Hey, they took the fort. Oh, now nah, they got got. No, they didn't. Okay, she jumped over a stick and wins. That oh. doesn't take long to read. Okay, well, those are definitely very useful reports for Kat to read then. I mean, she's taking whatever she can get. She does draw conclusions from these apparently sparse reports, though, that are valuable for her. She doesn't make mistakes. 
I informed my teacher. Every time she had the necessary information, the calls she made were perfect. Which is true, and remains true. And it makes her self-doubt narrative deep in the the Praisey campaign later on. Even more just unfortunate, because the only person who doesn't need imposter syndrome in this entire series is Juniper. Now, to be fair, Juniper does... Well, yeah. Juniper does... Juniper does goof up a little bit, leading to the the whole meltdown stage. But yes, generally speaking, she needs to be a little more confident. Marshall at this point. Marshally speaking. Oh, sorry. Marshally speaking. Rather than offering advice on this, Black, of course, makes what is just the height of comedy in response by saying, maybe I should have made her my squire then. And Kat's response is (laughs) to scowl at him and say... You know people only laugh at your jokes because they're scared of you, right? <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, as far as comebacks go, as far as, as retorts go, it's not the best thing, but it's very funny. Black is objectively a pretty funny guy, and <laughs> Kat's just so mad that her response is, you're not funny, you're just scary. And he just rolls with that and moves on to, you know, again make jokes at Kat's expense, implying that she's apparently going to be wedding Juniper because with they you know, the classic, if you love her so much, why don't you marry her, more or less? And Catherine gives it all due consideration, but she says, I've never found orcs particularly attractive, which I'd been informed was a shared opinion from their side of the wall. I have two comments. Do you want my slightly more serious or my completely inane one? Uh, the serious one first. This is a very serious podcast, so let's focus on that. Okay. Catherine says she never found orcs particularly attractive. Orcs don't find her particularly attractive. Sure. And we know interspecies attractions are appear to be at a reduced rate anyway, which makes sense. Humans need to find humans sexy so they make humans. Orcs need to find orcs sexy so they make orcs. Goblins need to find violence sexy so they can cause chaos. But we know there are human-orc relationships. We know a certain captain and a certain captain might have a certain relationship later on, which is great. But what that means is it's not humans aren't attracted to orcs and orcs aren't attracted to humans. It's I'm not particularly attracted to orcs. And also orcs think I'm an ugly human. And I like that. (laughs) It's not that humans are ugly. It's cat is orc ugly. I mean, he's small and has flat teeth. What, What else is there to say? Earlier, though, we realized that she was half-orc on her mother's side, the Duchess's, right? Right. That was a joke when I said it, but actually we just found confirmation here. I will read the line again. I'd never found orcs particularly attractive, which I'd been informed with a shared opinion from their side of the wall. Where's the wall? I mean, it's separating the orcs from all of Callow. Yeah, because Deina is run by the orc, who is Catherine's mother. Mm-hmm. Work is just lower meets in for Dwarith, for Jora. We've cracked it all open. So let's keep this in mind as we keep reading. Uh, I... Catherine, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Catherine keeps trying to figure out what to do. She's realizing she can't win in a straight up fight. And she says, that's fine. Quote, I'd never been all that fond of straight up fights. Yeah, yeah. In running through all of this, of course, Kat has to categorize list her strengths and weaknesses and she she is thinking about the fact that her name is going to be a deciding factor obviously but she also laments the fact that she can't count on the name because of a 
previous straight up fight that she'd been in and been in and lost ish she had managed to use her name since the last game and not for lack of trying so this is you know these last couple of days she hasn't really been able to use her name according to her and for this problem she blames as usual the lone swordsman and again i can't help but feeling this isn't really his fault and Kat really needs to get over the blaming of him if she's going to progress anywhere with this whole make my name work again situation. Hey, but William's terrible. So oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Let's blame him. Uh, okay, fair enough. So Catherine laments that she has to beat someone who always makes the right choices. And Black empathizes insofar as he can relate, insofar as he had Grem one eye under his command for 20 years. And... What Catherine needs to learn, editors note, do the thing, in this situation, is you gotta have a guy for that. You gotta have a guy for everything. Black had his magic guy. Black has his always make the right decision guy. Black has his right hand man girl, etc. Catherine needs the same. She needs an apprentice. She needs a future warlord. She needs a juniper. That's all. Learn, learn the lesson from Black. You can't be everything. You just get all the credit. But in his admission that he can empathize with the difficulty caused by being around someone who always makes the right choices, like Grem or Juniper, she finds that to be a jarring admission coming from a man who, she had been told, had once toppled the king of one of the free cities using only a rowboat, a donkey, and a pair of broken shovels. What free city? How many of them even have kings? Is this real? I should ask first. Is this a true story? What free city? And when do we get this? Extra chapter when, E.E.? <laughs> I think the most important draw from this sentence, the most important thing we can pull from it, is that Amadeus is actually just Captain Jack Sparrow in all ways that actually matter. Hey, but what if I hate Johnny Depp on principle? Hey, when are we doing a Pirates of the Caribbean podcast, by the way? I'll just share our Patreon goal for this month only. If by <laughs> the end of April we've hit the $50 tier, we're going to do a series of three podcasts on every we're doing three podcasts total three individual episodes on the entire pirates of the caribbean series one on curse of the black pearl one on dead men's chest one on at world's end with the last five minutes dedicated to all the remaining films i don't know how many there are i don't know if i've ever seen them i'm down for this i love these movies let's do it you have until the end of april 2023 and they'll be out within a month oh boy well okay they'll begin coming out within a month okay i can agree to that Black tells Catherine that the problems she faces need to be met with one easy trick. Captain Satan, learn to win battles with one easy trick. And Catherine says, are you going to do that thing where you give me cryptic advice that later comes in useful at a critical moment? Black took a sip from his cup, though not quickly enough to hide that he'd actually been a little offended by that. What a subtle but complete and total demonstration of Black's rude origin. He's a doony. He's not from a noble family. He's not even from a noble people group in the society. And in a place where it's more important to not scream when your finger is broken at a royal gala than it is to react humanly to... Well, it's more important not to scream than it is to not break someone's finger. Black is just a social abomination. And I love him. The Black Knight did nothing wrong. There is a chance that what's actually going on here is Black and Cat share exactly one brain cell and she can read him perfectly better than anybody else can, aside from, obviously, Militia. 
and you know he actually keeps things pretty well under wraps but cat can read him on the flip side yeah this poor guy's just not used to somebody who isn't a member of the calamities being catching on to him giving him this kind of lip it's great but black's advice of course is well if you can't uh, win the normal way then cheat and uh cat thinks about this and is oh cheating uh, do you want to elaborate and and black says don't win with the rules don't win according to the rules you need to win despite the rules and cat's takeaway from this is her first <laughs> big definitely her first big real villain moment where she says i was a villain wasn't i I supposed it was about time I started acting like one. Now is the moment. And going into this game in college where Kat is ready to act like a villain and break some rules. It's choice. It's very good. And it is the end of her illusion of total adherence to good. It's also the end of this episode of the podcast. Oh no! I'm sorry for setting that up. We could have gone for hours longer uh hours longer i don't think so that is actually all the time we have for today join us next week on podcast guys talking to reddit reddit we discuss dreams games and prices weighed in their uchafe gross weighed in their blood Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a serious podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Broadway Walk Big Band Music by Julius H. Laughter was crowdlaughing.wave by Isahu. Secret message music was Inspiring Morning by Playsound. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Do you want to exhort us to abandon this podcast and just do one on Orson Scott Card's Enderverse? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even force us to follow through on our promises and publish a three-part Pirates of the Caribbean series. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the name, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 23, Morox Plan. Morox Plan.